Welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition and helps you create a life by design. I'm your host, Cody McBroom, and with me is my co-host, Travis McQueen. Today we got a Q&A, and we're going to smash some Instagram questions, but we have questions coming, honestly, from every fucking angle. I've been doing two Q&As a week on Instagram, which has been Really cool. Um, and I'm answering them all there, but there's sometimes we take them here and we expand on them. So make sure you're following me at Cody McBroom so you can ask me questions there. There's probably a link to my Instagram in the description as well. Um, and we also have the Facebook group, which you can click on and join at no cost. Uh, you just got to answer a few questions so we know you're real. Uh, and that is in the description as well. And last but not least, there is a form that you can find in the description of this podcast and at the link uh, in my bio on my Instagram. Uh, you just click that. You can put your name or you can put something funny or unknown if you don't want to be named. There's no email required. You just give us your question and then we can bring it on the podcast. So make sure you guys are filling those out so we can get your questions answered on the show. All right. What do we got? All right. First question comes from Mr. Bell. It says, how much cardio should I be doing in order to drop body fat percentage? I have an active lifestyle and a resistance train six days a week. Um, I mean, this is a, it depends answer, you know, like, I mean, how much do you want to do? There's, I mean, there's arguments say you could do none if you really wanted to. Um, we talked about this. Are they arguments? Um, they're not anymore because science proved it, but I mean, there's people who like, will. I mean, they'll say it's a trend or something (laughs) kind of like the guy on Instagram. Um, there's, there's people that try so hard to make their argument for their claim, you know, whereas people like myself are, uh, who are actually evidence-based kind of there. It's always, it depends. It's always like, well, that, I mean, you could do that, but you could do this, right? Like the post on Instagram was about tracking calories and he said it was a trend, which is hilarious because calories aren't a trend. It's a unit of measurement, but their argument was to create a deficit without tracking. And can you do that? Absolutely. It depends on blah, blah, blah. And I'll explain how you can get there through tracking. Or if you don't want to track to find there, you're going to have a tough time learning how do you even know if you're in a calorie deficit? Because you can't have a calorie deficit if you don't know what a calorie is, which means you should probably count calories at some point. Um, but the point is, is there's there's always, it depends, and there's different ways around it, right? So um, I think the arguments are just gurus and charlatans trying to like put their flag in the ground and make a claim that's not really justified. But um, the truth is, is, is energy expenditure is what we're after, or I'm sorry, a, a, a energy deficit is what we're after, which can come from creating a calorie deficit through food, or it can come through energy expenditure through cardio. However, the body is much more adaptive to cardio being added than it is food being taken. So we do know that adaptive thermogenesis happens. That's what metabolic adaptation is. So if we pull calories out of our diet, we are going to adapt to that. And we adapt to it in a few different ways. We adapt to it quite literally because we are taking calories out of our diet and therefore our body is getting used to eating less calories. As it gets more used to eating less calories, it is trying to essentially create homeostasis, right? Normality. It is doing that from a lower calorie intake, which is why it ends up having a lower basal metabolic rate, lower maintenance calories. That's metabolic adaptation. The other way it does it is from losing weight, which makes a lot of sense. And this is where like, there's some people who, um, like we were, we had Menno on, I don't know if it's aired by the time this goes out or not. Um, and he doesn't like reverse dieting. Uh, I was having a conversation with Mike Matthews as well about this via email and he's not a fan of reverse dieting. And the research that they use to support what they talk about is very accurate. And I agree with, it's kind of like if, if your maintenance is, 
people listening can't see me, but you, so if your main's right here, let's say it's 2,000, and you diet down 1,500 calories, and you got to get back up to 2,000, you can do it this week, and you're going to gain three pounds, and most of it is water and glycogen and all that, right? Like we know that happens when you reverse diet. Or you can do it over a month, and you're still going to gain that same amount of weight. It just took you a month to get there, right? And there's really no reason to take a month to get there if you're going to gain the same amount of weight because if you take a month to get there, you're prolonging the deficit. You're prolonging the time that you are not at maintenance, right? You're prolonging the time of your body being under more stress than it needs to be. So it makes a lot more sense to just be like, okay, well, we're done with the diet. We lost weight. Like, let's just get up here. The problem becomes when people don't know where their maintenance is at. Um, So it's usually not as easy and cut and dry as that math for the average individual. Number one, because they don't have so much data on their body that they can tell us exactly how many calories they've eaten, how many calories they've burned, all those kind of things. Like somebody like myself or Menno or Mike probably could because we do record a lot of data. We have a lot of experience. And some of the clients we work with do as well. Um, But if somebody doesn't know their maintenance, that presents one problem. The other thing is if somebody you know, if, if their maintenance was 2,500 and they went down to 1,500 to get to their final result, and in that process, they lost 50 pounds, you jump right back up to 2,500. That's your maintenance of your body that was 50 pounds heavier. Now we're going to have the issue of your body trying to create homeostasis at such a high intake that it's not supposed to. And that's where a lot of fat accumulation comes from. So this is where like, and I think they would, they would agree with this too in those kind of scenarios because they're both really smart people. Like, it makes more sense. And this is why everything depends. It makes more sense to go to from 1500 to 1800, assess, see where you're at, then 1850, then 1900, 1950, 2000. And yeah, that takes four weeks instead of one week. But if we're pretty sure that we're no longer out of maintenance of 2500, we want to go slow to get there, right? We might get you out of the deficit, the, the main part of the deficit as quick as possible to get rid of those negative biomarkers. But we're not going to jump all the way up to your old maintenance because we know that's not your new maintenance now. And the only way to find your new maintenance is to go kind of slow for half of the process. Yeah. I think once upon a time, and this is the part they don't agree with, and I don't agree with this either. Once upon a time, you finish a diet and they would literally add five carbs. Wait, five carbs. Wait. And then it turns a reverse diet into a six-month process. It's a long time. Fuck yeah. And it's so hard to psychologically adhere to that. Um, okay, so it's kind of a side tangent. But the reason I was explaining that is because the body's going to adapt when you create a deficit, plain and simple. But we've seen in a lot of research that the body adapts more critically with cardio than anything else. So there's an argument made to not really rely on cardio for fat loss at all because when I create a deficit through cardio, there's a few things here. Number one, if I go on a walk outside, it's gonna depend on the terrain, the incline or decline, if I'm walking up a hill or not, um, if I'm what pace I'm moving at, which I really won't know if I'm not on a treadmill. You could try to track how many steps you get within that time period. Um, there's, I mean, there's so many factors that go into how many calories you burn on that walk. Yeah. And if you do it on a treadmill, you got to use the same treadmill at the same speed, at the same incline, at the same time of day, every single time to even have that accuracy of keeping it the same. Whether the treadmill says you burn 300 calories or not, that's irrelevant. It's probably highly inaccurate. But if you do the same thing every time, whatever amount of calories you burn, we know it's the same. And yeah. you can track that. And then when you add five minutes to all your cardio sessions, you know you're adjusting from the right spot. Rather than if you're going on a walk outside, as you diet longer, you're going to get slower and slower on that walk. You know, it's still 30 minutes, but your pace goes lower. Your steps get smaller. You take more pauses to text real quick. Like things like that happen subconsciously. And if you're burning a lot of calories through 
cardio, your body compensates by removing the calorie expenditure elsewhere. So you'll, like we've talked about with NEAT and BMR, blinking, talking, fidgeting, chewing, all those kind of things lower in order to compensate um, for that energy balance. And there's a, uh, this is like the, the adaptive thermogenesis process in theory. There's a lot of research on this doesn't happen as much with dieting um, or as quickly with dieting and it's easier to track with dieting because if I'm doing 10,000 steps a day, six training sessions um, per week uh, and I'm in a this big of a deficit, I just need to make sure I keep my 10,000 steps, I keep getting the same amount of sleep and I keep training as often as I am. You know what I mean? There's not really much else I can do. Um, but the thing I would say is cardio is really good for you. I mean, there's aspects of it that are helpful for the aerobic and oxidative system, which help your resistance training. It helps your heart health. I mean, there's there's an array of benefits just from that perspective. Um, so I definitely don't not recommend it. I just don't re- recommend it being your source of relying on anything for fat loss. Um, I know for me, like when I want to utilize cardio for more fat loss with a client, it's typically via steps. Like I first thing is like, okay, let's increase the step count. Once I increase the step count, I do sometimes add in low intensity cardio, like walking. Like yesterday, I was walking the treadmill. Same thing. I was riding the bike yesterday. Um, same thing. 30 minutes cardio this many times a week at like this pace. And we're not going to track the steps that are done in there. Because again, if it, because of that compensation, if you keep the step counter on, you will move less throughout the day knowing like what I've seen and they've done this in research, but what I've seen with clients is that basically like we're doing 10,000 steps a day and then I add 30 minutes cardio three times a week and I still see 10,000 steps a day on their tracker every day. Yeah. But if they're doing 30 minutes extra cardio three times a week, they should have 15,000 plus on those days. Right. But they don't because their body compensates. So when you have those cardio days, you take the tracker off, you have to deliberately try to hit those 10,000 steps still to make sure you're not compensating. Um, so, yeah, and this is that's a perfect example of why you can't just be intuitive about this shit. Yeah. Some stuff just requires data. But there's not a specific amount of cardio that you would recommend. No. Okay. No. Cool. All right, we will move on to the next question. It, um, r- real quick, I guess yeah. the, the only thing I could say that I would recommend is um, there is literature to show, uh, I want to say it's like eight to 11,000 steps per day is optimal for health. Like, if, if you're in that range, like, you start seeing significant improvements in health, biomarkers, blood glucose, insulin levels when you hit about 8,000 steps and they keep improving until about 11. It's either 11 or 13,000. Um, I know it was a low odd number in the teens. Um, and after that, they taper off. Like you don't get more health benefits at 17,000. It's like that range. So if I was going to recommend any range, it would be that. Totally. That way we know we're getting the health benefits out of it. Yeah. Cool. All right. Next one comes from... Footloose Fitness. It says, if you want to increase arm size, should you dedicate one whole day for just arms? Me and Travis Hunt were talking about this yesterday um, or the day before, whenever he was here. Have you seen Footloose? Do you know what that is? Uh, yeah. I figured you haven't seen it. Yeah. But it's not a bad thing. No. It's, a, it's an odd movie. I want to say something super stupid. What? It's kind of like Grease, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. Kind of, yeah. It's uh, Kevin Bacon. And okay. It's basically yeah. like... Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. He, he loves dancing yeah. and he lives in a town where it's a, it's illegal to dance, Yeah, which is so stupid. You think about that. It's like, it's illegal to dance here. You can't do that. And then he like goes into this. I just remember the one scene cause I was so young when that came out. There's that one scene where he goes into an empty parking garage and nobody's around. He just starts like dancing his heart out cause nobody <laughs> could see him. <laughs> so ridiculous. Oh, man. Uh, that's how he got famous though. And that, that song foot loose. Yeah. Um, all right. So should you have a whole arm day? Um, 
there's reasons to say yes. There's reasons to say no. So like there's, there's a few overarching things here, right? So number one, if you want to increase muscle mass in your arms, but really when I say arms for anybody, listen, this could be applied to any muscle group. Um, just make sure that you're taking proper precautions. So for example, uh, with your arms, make sure you're taking care of tissue quality, joint health, because your elbows are going to be more likely and susceptible to joint issues. If you do a ton of flexion extension of your elbow, right? It's just, like that's how people get tennis elbow is overdoing it and overstressing the joint. Um, if you want to specialize in your chest, your pec minor, your bicep tendon, your shoulder joint, they're more likely to have stress. So you got to take care of them. If you want glutes, your low back, your hips, like it's common sense, right? Quads, your knees. So just make sure you're paying attention to the tendons, ligaments, and joints around the muscle you're specializing in. Because when you increase volume in that area, you're also increasing volume to the tendons, ligaments, and joints. And people often don't think about that. And then they have aches and pains and they wonder why. Um, So with that being said, what you want to do to increase your your arm size is you want to increase your volume. And there's a lot of ways to do that. Um, I love having an arm day. It is the most fun day. You just get, like... the, the video we shot was like, it's such a fun training session to me. Yep. Um, and that will be my session tomorrow without all those intensification techniques, obviously. But um, it's, it's an arm day and it's a day that is like, I place it there because I'm running more of a bodybuilding specific program that I'm testing for the app, but it's to specialize at a body part. I don't hit my arms directly any other day. I do rows and presses, which are going to hit my biceps and triceps other days of the week. And then I have one day to just demolish my arms. However, there's a limit to how many sets you can do in a single session without having diminishing returns. Um, And 10 is usually where that number is maxed out um, of good volume, right? So if I do like a band curl just to get some blood flow, I'm not going to count that as a working set. But for me in that session, it's usually like um, three, three, two, two, and then they're all supersets. So for example, it's like a a barbell curl and a tricep, like easy uh, easy bar, like a skull crusher. Um, three sets of each and then another like dumbbell curl and tricep extension three sets of each and then um, higher rep curl and extension for two sets and then two sets it's 10 total sets four exercises and I'm trying to hit basically every joint angle I can so I'm going to do an overhead tricep extension and a uh, one in front of my face one at a neutral position I'm going to do one in an extended position like a dip I'm going to do a neutral grip curl a supinated grip curl I'm going to do a shoulder flexion extended and neutral change those things out and you can hit all the angles. Um, however, it can lead to joint issues for some people if they don't do it properly. Um, and there's no, there's no research to show that that method would do better than me taking those 10 sets and doing them across three days of the week, which actually is probably more likely to work based on the research. Because if you think about it, so there's two things here. One, by my last sets of those, those bicep curls and shit, uh, I mean, I think I was curling five pound dumbbells and my arms were like just crazy vain. I could barely like bend my elbows. I can do more than five pound curls. So in one area, you're like, you're hurting yourself by doing all this arm training in a single day because by the end of it, you can't lift as heavy. Now I was doing the five pounds because I was running the rack. So I was going from 40 to five, but it still applies to that, right? If I'm doing barbell curls and dumbbell curls, by the end of the day, I'm not going to be able to curl as heavy as I would if I did three sets on Monday, three sets on Wednesday, and three sets or four sets on Friday. Still 10 sets across the week, but all of them are at heavier loads, and that leads to a higher total volume. However, there's also research with blood flow restriction and metabolic stress, so like metabolite accumulation, where when you accumulate a lot of metabolic fatigue, it generates a lot of 
uh, byproduct in the muscle that leads to muscle growth. So that lactate threshold, that lactic acid, quote unquote, you feel the burn, you feel that is metabolite accumulation. You're, you're generating a lot of metabolic stress and that is a key indicator of, of hypertrophy. And some people will dedicate full phases of their training to just that type of training. So I'm not going to accomplish that by doing three or four sets unless I'm taking them to 25 reps, but even then I'm not that much. So on the other extent, it might be beneficial to have an arm day because I can do a few different sets of heavier curls to get my like lower rep as in like 10 to 15 reps for the arms. Um, there's no sense in going lower than eight reps on arms in my opinion, uh, but generate some higher volume through load sets. And then I can, my arms already have a pump and then I do sets of 20 plus I'm going to generate even more metabolic fatigue metabolites. So there's pros and cons to both sides of it. Um, Generally, in my experience, uh, I tend to spread the volume out most of the time with, with my clients. Um, I've had a lot of women come to me for, uh, they want bigger glutes, and it works really well for me to do. Ha- I've done it to where they have a glute day, but I really like having like three days of the week where they're doing glutes. So like a lower upper uh, push pull or lower upper legs push pull, and then I do glutes on the lower day, the leg day, and the pull day. So Monday, Wednesday, Friday, essentially, or Monday, Thursday, Saturday, whatever they want they have glutes in their training. And I'd rather do that. It generally keeps joints safer. You can go heavier on the loads you're doing across the week and spread out the volume. Um, And sometimes it allows you to do the exact same exercise more than once a week. And just, instead of me doing six sets of hip thrust today, my weight just gets lower as I go because I'm getting fatigued. I'll do three sets today, three sets Wednesday, the same load, so my total weekly volume is higher. Generally, that works better. Now, the only other thing I would say is that if you generally like doing one of those things, there's, then you should do it because enjoyment's a big factor in this. There's enough pros of doing it as long as you stay around 10 sets per that muscle group in that session that I think it's valuable just from a standpoint of you get really fired up about the training session. The more excited you are for that training session, the more engaged you are in your training, you know? And I, I used to like doing stuff like that on like a Saturday because it took a little bit more for me to wake up early and get to the gym on a Saturday morning. Yeah. But if I know it's an arm day, I'm like, dope. You know, if it's a conditioning day, I'm like, fuck that. Like I... I really don't enjoy getting here at seven in the morning on a cold Saturday and riding the assault bike and doing farmer's carries. Yeah. I would do it sometimes, but I never enjoyed it. It's homework. If I, and if I know I'm going to come in here at seven in the morning, just do a fuck ton of curls. I don't mind it. Yeah. It's kind of fun, you know? So, um, yeah, you can go either way. Basically boils down to volume and how we can utilize program design to get the most amount of volume possible with the least amount of fatigue and injury risk, which usually leads to, um, and this is like Mike Israel talked about this a lot on our podcast when we did with him, uh, the stimulus to fatigue ratio. So if you do it one day a week, it's a high, high stimulus, but it's very high fatigue cost, right? Um, if you do it three times a week, you can still get a high stimulus, but the fatigue is lower because you're not doing so much in a single session. That might be more advantageous because you have just as much stimulus, less fatigue, you can recover better, you know. And obviously, glutes, hamstrings, quads, chest, lats, those are bigger muscles. It's a little bit different. Biceps and triceps, the fatigue isn't that high anyway because yeah. it's not centrally fatiguing. Yeah. You know? Did you say that was Mike? Mike is tell, yeah. yeah. He, he created the term uh, stimulus to fatigue ratio. Gotcha. Which is really cool. It's a cool way to uh, uh, kind of like analyze your, your exercise selection. So as you're creating a program, you can choose based on the stimulus to fatigue ratio. It's why like when I do a hypertrophy program, I don't really do deadlifts. I don't think there's not enough of a stimulus for growth because like when you do a a conventional deadlift, there's a little bit of quads, better amount of glutes and hamstrings, some lats, good amount of core. There's just like kind of a lot of everything. 
So the stimulus for muscle growth is really low because you're not localizing tension. The stimulus for strength is really high because you lift a lot of fucking weight and it's a neurological lift for strength. But for hypertrophy, the stimulus is pretty low and the fatigue is through the roof. It's like one of the most fatiguing exercises you could do. So for a squat, that's different. A squat is a compound lift, but I could do like a heels elevated close stance squat, create a ton of tension and stimulus on my quads. And yeah, there's a good amount of fatigue, but it's worth it because the stimulus is so high, right? And so you can gauge your training and your exercise selection based on like, optimizing stimulus and trying to minimize fatigue for your exercise selection, which is going to be the best bet for generating a lot of volume, which is a good point to factor into this when you're deciding on an arm day. Yeah, for sure. Or spreading volume. Yep. Good stuff. All right, cool. We will move on to the next one. It says, it comes from Nick G. Loam. It says, new, I am new to lifting and have about 15 pounds to lose. Do you recommend that I cut before I start bulking? That's a good question. Um, you know what, like questions like this remind me of how, and I'm actually starting to kind of get to this place again. I've been getting really into like my own diet and training these last few weeks and it's getting me excited. But like when I was a beginner, like when I was brand new to this shit, I just like, I would be so engulfed into like cutting and bulking and cycle and how long I'm doing this and like the supplement routine and everything. Like even some of the shit that did not work at all, it was just like, bullshit supplements GNC marketed to me. The fact that it got me so hyped about being doing like my lifestyle, my fitness lifestyle, like that shit was so cool to me. Um, when I get questions like this, I always think about that stuff. Uh, fires me up. So I would, there's two options here. Bulking is not one of them. In my opinion, if you're brand new to lifting, I see no reason to bulk because you're going to generate the same amount of muscle, no matter what. I believe that you as a beginner could, Assuming you have a good program, obviously if you if you bulked with a great program and you like were at maintenance with a shitty program, you're gonna grow more with a good program. But like let's say programs equated, you're gonna lift with a good program. Um, if you don't have a good program, dude, join the Taylor Trainer. It's dirt cheap, and there's amazing programs in there. Um, but you're following a good program. I think you would build just as much muscle at maintenance calories as you would in a in a big surplus bulking. And the reason is because as a beginner your body is so malleable to this new stimulus you're giving it Mm. that you're going to adapt by building new muscle tissue no matter what. So I truly believe that if you go the the path of maintenance calories, you're going to apply stress to the muscle tissue and your body's going to be forced to grow. If you do it at a surplus, your body's still going to be forced to grow. And for an advanced lifter, you need to be in a surplus to be able to grow. But at a newbie, I don't believe that's the case simply because... I think newbies can do anything and they're going to grow optimally. They're going to like max out their growth potential no matter what, because it's such a fresh new stimulus to that person that I don't think it really applies. That's why there's a lot of people who start lifting and they just naturally get into a calorie deficit and build a ton of muscle. And it's like, how are you building muscle at a calorie deficit? Well, you're brand fucking new. So your body's going to grow no matter what you do. You know, it's, it's literally, you're applying a stimulus to it that, it is forcing itself to grow no matter what. And at a certain point, you start lifting heavier and doing more volume. Now you're forced to do way more to grow and you have to supply extra nutrients in order to be able to continue growing because you, you won't be able to recover from it otherwise. Um, so I would either cut or I would stay at maintenance. And I think it depends on which one you want to favor more. Um, there's a lot of people who are new and the, they'll say like, oh, I have 15 pounds of fat to lose and they actually have like 25 to 30. They don't realize it, but they could actually lose a lot more weight than they realize because they're not obese. But if yeah. they want the look they want, they're going to have to lose more weight. 
And so in that scenario, I might actually start with a cut because you're still going to build muscle as long as your protein is high enough in your strength training. I would start with a cut because your motivation is really high and you have a good amount of fat to lose. And when you're about halfway to that journey, you reverse your calories back up to maintenance and you continue pushing in the gym trying to build muscle. And I think you would continue to recomp. Because in my mind, somebody like this, in this, I wouldn't know unless I saw you, obviously, but I've seen this many times where they like, oh, I got 10, 15 pounds to lose, and it's really like 20 to 30. You lose that first 10 to 15 pounds, and then you get out of a deficit. All the while, you were building muscle, and you'll continue building muscle, but now you can lose weight at a, you can lose body fat at a slower pace, and just allow yourself to build muscle at a faster pace, because now you're, you're, you're into it a bit, and now you're going to supply yourself with more calories, better recovery, and you'll be able to build muscle at a pretty similar rate to what you're losing fat. So you almost go from like losing fat to recomping all in one phase, if that makes sense. So let's say it takes you 12 weeks to lose 10 to 15 pounds, and then you bring your calories back up. You continue losing fat, but you're focusing on building muscle at maintenance. So just training hard, getting enough volume in. Um, you're going to continue building muscle and burning fat, and you might lose fat or lose weight at a much slower pace or not at all, but it's because you're adding muscle, and you'll continue to look leaner and leaner and leaner. Um, and there's also something to say about you will look leaner at the same body fat if you have more muscle. Yeah. So if somebody is like, this is why like if somebody's skinny fat, it's good to go on a muscle growth phase because they could rec- they could lose fat and build muscle and not change weight and, or I'm sorry, they could build muscle and not lose any body fat, but technically their body fat percentage is now lower because of their total weight, more of it is muscle mass, right? So if, if you're 170 pounds and you're skinny fat and you're, 20% body fat and you build 10 pounds of muscle. So you've gained 10 pounds and you didn't lose a single ounce of fat. You would now be 15% body fat, right? You didn't lose any body fat, yeah. but you added muscle to your frame. So now from your total weight, less of it is body fat, right? Totally. Um, and you would see the difference, right? And you could cut two for that. But, um, but the point is I've seen a lot of people who think they need to get leaner because they want to look more muscular and it's like no let's train your abs more often let's lift heavy and try to build some muscle and because of that their physique changes and they look way leaner yeah. when in reality they just built muscle totally. you know um because yeah i mean you fill out more you know what i mean so yeah uh a lot to that but uh, i would probably say either cut and just you know build muscle on a deficit and then shift to maintenance because you're a newbie you're going to gain muscle no matter what or just find your maintenance and just start Training hard, man. I think you would probably, um, you know, I, I probably would still do a deficit, honestly. That would be my recommendation. Because if you really have 15 pounds to lose, then you'd need to be in a deficit still. Um, but I think you'd still be building muscle in a deficit. And then once you're about halfway to that uh, long-term goal, unless you really do just have 10 to 15 pounds, get there and then shift to maintenance and start building muscle. Plain and simple. Uh, yeah. But doing it at maintenance is going to be nice because then you can actually stay lean while building. And you can avoid going into a surplus until you're like, more of an intermediate advanced lifter and actually need to go into a surplus. Yeah. So cool. All right, guys, really, really good questions today. I love answering those kind of ones. So, uh, leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes and Spotify. Make sure you share this on Instagram and tag me at Cody McBroom. So I can thank you for listening and share it on my, uh, story as well. As always, we appreciate you guys and we'll catch you next time. Yeah.